You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from the Encore series, where we revisit past museum programs and conversations. Welcome back to part two of Breaking the Blue Ceiling, originally introduced live on December 9th of 2020. We're continuing this revisit as part of Women's History Month, and be sure to tune back in with us for the third and final part of this series on March 29th. Part one began with opening remarks from the Memorial Fund CEO, Marsha Ferranto, and keynote speaker, Senator Maggie Hassan, followed by individual introductions from each panelist. Former director of the ATF, Regina Lombardo, starts the discussion off with a question of what sort of difficulties have women had to face and overcome upon entering the law enforcement profession. A complete list of the panelists is in the episode description. And now for part two of Breaking the Blue Ceiling. Let's dig into our first uh, topic and theme, I call them themes, which is really uh, something that we all have mentioned and every single one of us have mentioned. And it's, it's, uh, it's what I call these hurdles. We always talk about hurdles for decades and decades. We've had some hurdles. Some uh, hurdles are different for for us. Um, I might not have the same hurdle as Linda or uh, Melissa or Kristen, but I can tell you that we have what we call uh, some definite hurdles. So Linda, given your experience as a human resources, especially with the Secret Service and and today, um, what would you uh, describe as probably the two major hurdles uh, for let's say women in in our profession? I'd like to hear from you. And then I'd like to also hear from Danielle, uh, what your thoughts are on hurdles and what have you yourself faced uh, in that, that time? And Jim, I'd like you to kind of follow it up with with a few uh, of other, uh, you know, suggestions and comments when you hear uh, men necessarily or women say uh, that policing is a man's job. So I can break them down for each of you, but Linda, if you wouldn't mind just giving us first your top two hurdles, and if Danielle, you can kind of add to that as well, and and feel free, anybody on the panel that has, that's passionate about wanting to say something that they can share that can help the, especially the women in the audience. So Linda. Thank you. You know, two of the greatest hurdles, and I think we all share this on screen, of course, is just being a woman, your gender, to be ex- to be accepted into that environment, to recognize you for you, yourself and your abilities. But the greatest hurdle was motherhood. At the time that I came on uh, uh, and I was assigned to the uh, presidential detail, I did my presidential time through the Clinton administration. I was the only female on a major uh, can, uh, detail, that's the, uh, the presidential protective detail, the vice presidential protective detail, or even any foreign or even a former presidents. So I was the only working mother at that time. Uh, my daughter was six months old. I literally stopped nursing her a week before and went through the gates of the vice presidential residency. And as you know, director in 1996, uh, the federal government was still trying to figure out what to do with pregnant women. And there was no such thing as maternity leave. And how do a pregnant woman even work while she is you know, still very much engaged? And so I like to say that you know, we are all super women because you know, we have to be twice as good to be considered half as good. But even more so for me as a mom, and that's way before you know, the world had, everybody had access to a cell phone. I was on the campaign trail with then uh, Vice President Al Gore. I was the only person, like I said, that had a baby. And so every night that we were on ground, of course, I would stop wherever we were and get on the telephone to call my child. 
Um, but it was a lot of times that we were flying in the air and I could not call my child to say goodnight. And so God puts special people in your place. Everybody that is your supporter doesn't necessarily look like you or the skin, same skin tone you are, but they see the goodness in you. And so at that time, I had a special agent in charge and he said, Linda, I notice every night you call your child. He said, even when we're on Air Force Two, I'm gonna swipe this card, you take my seat and you just tell your, your daughter goodnight every night. And that was such a that was such a relief for me Although it was no more than saying, you know, good night, I love you, let's pray, and, you know, kiss that individual then name that I entitled as my husband. But it's challenging because the thing about it, when you come through those gates, they want a special agent, someone that is ready, someone that's relieved, someone that's ready to come in and do their work. They don't want to hear about child care issues and stuff. So it was a great balance of, of quality life that you had to have a support system. At that time, I lived in Washington, DC. I had no family, I had no family. My, my ex was on the job as well. So it took a lot of support, it took understanding, but I had to be my professional self. So if ever I had to use that card, they realized that was, that, that was the end of my rope. But by the grace of God, I navigated well, uh, now he's a husband and my daughter is a uh, well-educated young lady uh, pursuing her master's degree. Well, how great is that? Uh, I'm sure that the hurdles uh, that you've shared are probably a lot of the hurdles that uh, we often hear, especially in federal government with moves and mobility and how do you, how do you balance it all? So um, Danielle, I, I would like to ask you, you know, what are your thoughts on hurdles and what has really been some of the hurdles that you, know, you have faced? I heard your story uh, earlier and your, you know, what inspired you and motivated you to uh, even step into to law enforcement. But I would imagine, you know, coming in from that position in Oakland to where you were in Portland and to now where you are in Philly, that the hurdles that you've had to come through uh, were, were probably uh, maybe insurmountable, but obviously you've managed them. So I'd love to hear that more about that. Sure. And uh, thank you again. I think by the time I left Oakland, after all of the experiences that I'd had there, I was ready for anything, to be honest with you. Um, so the if I would choose two, I would say the top one would be scrutiny. Um, the biases that we experience today, they're not as overt. They're far more nuanced and they manifest in ways of questioning and scrutinizing. And, you know, I, I, I like, it was either Kristen or Melissa that said, right, you know, people every step of the way will say, well, why, why you? I mean, even I've been asked questions, you know, whether I, it was my announcement in Portland as the chief, you know, the, the commentary and the media was every detail down to the type of cell phone case that I had, what I was wearing, what type of earrings I had on. And then I got announced here and a reporter asked flat out, why you, why do you think you're qualified? You know? And I think because of, matter of fact, I know because of my progression over the years, my entire professional career, I've gotten to a point where before I even think about it, I'm like, why not me, right? But I, it took some time to develop that and to get that confidence, right? So what people see now today is it, several years of being stressed out or at some point caring 
what people think when you know you've worked the hardest, when it's, it's beyond checking boxes, right? Because we know we second guess ourselves. Um, I think Kristen mentioned, you know, questioning whether or not to take this test. I did the same thing. Should I take this test now? Because some people think that uh, seven years isn't enough to take the sergeant's test. And to be quite frank with you, I only took that test because I was going through a divorce at that time. I was separated. And while my husband, uh, <laughs> you, you know, um, at the time, you know, was not as supportive because we worked together and we were peers and he had taken the test uh, before and hadn't been successful, I didn't want to rock the boat in my household. And so I waited until that time to take the test and I came out number one. First female ever in the history of the department come out number one. But what would that have done in the household if I came out number one? What you know, you know, so these are things that you're thinking about and you have small children. And you know, I had to learn to look after myself because we've been the caregivers of the world and nurturers and providers for so many other people to the point where uh, if if folks let us, you know, we'll get guilted into thinking about ourselves first that there's no humility in thinking about yourself or preparing yourself or educating yourself. So fast forward to, you know, it comes time to take these tests and everybody else is like, yeah, you know, I'm gonna take this test. I ain't even study though. Okay, right. <laughs> You're right. You, you know, you did, but we have to put in 112%. We all know that story. So the scrutiny from day one is, well, why is she in this job? Or why do you think you should? And it, it's it's asked in, in sometimes out in the open ways, but again, a little bit more covertly. So overcoming that scrutiny as I gotten, you know, as I'd matured in the in in the profession and gotten more comfortable in my own skin, as a maturing woman, as a mother, as a wife, as an ex-wife, and doing all of this in the same department. Um, you not only learn to, to grow a thick skin, but I, I became comfortable in saying, I don't lose sleep at night because I know I'm doing the right things for the right reasons. If someone were to ask me, why should you get this position? I can spout off what my strengths are without putting down others who are potentially competing for these positions as well. And when it comes to making discipline decisions or whatever it is, I don't lose sleep because I know I do it because it's the right thing to do. So when you fast forward to my announcement here um, <laughs> and you talk about scrutiny, people are looking for you to make a mistake. I know this now. So I've been very intentional about how I move and I maneuver through these systems. When I open my mouth to speak, I'm very intentional. When I send something out in writing, I'm very intentional. We're all gonna make mistakes. And if I make a mistake, I own up, you know, I own up to it. But fast forward to here, and the article is the first thing, you know, crime is going through the ceiling. And the first thing Commissioner Outlaw does is changes a nail polish policy. Really? Yeah. Would you have made that a headline if I didn't look like what I look like? The answer is no, absolutely not. And the reality behind it was it was, you know, someone told me, hey, Commissioner, you got on polish. It's not in policy, you know, in passing in the hallway. And I said, oh, really? OK, we're going to change that. Kept it moving, didn't even think twice about it. But that got leaked out because people are looking for reasons to, to you know, find something negative to say. 
And so when the media on my day two did their, you know, their one-on-ones with me and they asked me about it, I said, yeah, I did that. But let me tell you why there's a benefit. You can't be what you can't see. I don't want to be anything or grow up to be anything if I can't see myself in that. So if I'm on the one hand on, you know, looking this way saying, yes, I want to diversify the police department. I want you to come for, you know, I want you for who you are. All these great things that that brings the diversity in your different ways of problem solving and, and your diversity and thought and just all of these unique characteristics about you. Yes, I love you. Please come. And then I hire you and you get here. And I said, remember all that stuff that I love about you? Strip all that away. You're going to be like this now. I'm now talking out of both sides of my neck and it completely makes no sense. So I took that narrative of she came in here changing a nail polish policy and that was the first thing she cared about and, and educated folks as to why that lends to my overall vision and ensuring we get the right people in the right seats. We're marketing towards who we want to be here. Because again, if people cannot identify with the folks you know, responding to calls for service. One, how are we going to build, build trust? And two, how are we going to motivate people and encourage them to even want to be here in the first place? So it's one thing to get people here, you know, their foot in the door, but you have to support them and provide an infrastructure for them when they get here. And then the second thing, really quick, I would say um, a hurdle is having a personal life, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I kind of joke about the husband thing, but it's like times two for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a sacrifice. Um, and, and that's with any profession, I, you know, or any of us in law enforcement, but whether, you, whether you're male or female, but for those of us, again, with families or, uh, those, w- you know, with whom we are, are caregivers, whether it's children or elders or our parents or puppies, whatever it is, generally, we know that those responsibilities fall on us. And so we have to sacrifice either on the front end, or on the back end. I had my children very early on in my career. Um, versus later in my career. But again, it's a sacrifice either way. So making sure that you have very strong support circles, which I was very fortunate enough to have um, amongst my family and in my community was extremely helpful with that. And then also having folks on the job that helped me, um, you know, just like Linda said, identifying, you know, you still got to do the job. You you know, there might be time, you still got to work night and night, seven in the morning. But there is, you know, a, a circle of trust and friendship and community within the department as well that was very supportive of me. That was part two of Breaking the Blue Ceiling, part of our Encore series and a particularly timely discussion during Women's History Month. We thank you for joining us once again, and we'll stay tuned for our upcoming episode releases every Wednesday, and once a month, we'll publish an Icons episode exclusively on Tuesday. We hope you learned something from this episode of Encore, and we'll join us next time on March 29th for the third and final installment of Breaking the Blue Ceiling, as the conversation dives even deeper into women and the law enforcement profession. For more information on this program, follow the link in the episode description. A special thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Encore, a series from the Precinct 444 Podcast Network by the National Law Enforcement Museum. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. 
you can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the Precinct.